What's up, Christ Walk? How's everybody doing this morning? So good to see all of you here today. I'm so, so excited to be continuing week three of doing things that matter. It's going to be so awesome today. So awesome today. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me. Or if you're using a smart device, swipe with me. We're going to land in Genesis chapter 45 today. Genesis chapter 45. We're going to be taking a look at some verses there. So we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. You know, a couple weeks ago, we started this series and we're taking a look at the life of Joseph. So we talked about how Joseph was a dreamer, and we talked about that if we're going to do something that matters, that we need to dream wildly. And then, then last week, we, we talked about Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife um, lied uh, uh, about him and, and caused him to be thrown into prison. But Joseph, he refused to give in to sin and temptation, and that if we're going to do something that matters, we've got to live differently. And then today, um, if you haven't caught on to the theme already, we're talking about loving recklessly, that if we're going to do something that matters, we've got to love recklessly. So we're going we're gonna to land there in just a moment. And, but I was reading an article this week, um, uh, kind of strange, about hoarding. Anybody ever heard of hoarding? You know, how many of you watch that show? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, you watch that show, hoard, like, and it just goes into people's houses, and there's just stuff, you know? And this article, it said that uh, roughly 5% of the population of America has the propensity to become a hoarder, all right? So I know what you're thinking. You're looking around the room and you're trying to figure out who the 5% is. Well, I can let you in on on at least part of it. Um, Part of that 5% is my daughter, Avery. Um, she's nine years old and like to say that she has the propensity to hoard is the understatement of the century. All right. So like we'll go in, we'll, we'll tell her, Avery, you need to clean up your room. And so she'll do her best, you know, the best that a nine year old can do. And it looks pretty good, you know, and then within like 15 minutes of that, it looks like the nuclear Holocaust has taken place inside of her bedroom and all of these little collections come out and they're on the floor in these piles everywhere. And you know, she, she likes these toys that there's, there's, why do kids toys have to have tiny little pieces? Like I call them like live right pieces because when you step on one of them in the middle of the night, you find out whether or not you've been living right. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like all this stuff is everywhere. And then, and you, you guys have seen like, you remember the Where's Waldo books? You know, you'd open up and it's got like the one guy Waldo and he's got the striped pajamas and the hat and everything. And he's in the sea of people and things going on and you've got to try to find him. A lot of times whenever we go into Avery's bedroom, it's kind of like playing a game of Where's Avery? You know, she might be in the bed underneath 39 blankets with 74 stuffed animals around her. She could be in this pile over here. You know, maybe she's in the closet underneath all the clothes. We don't know where she is. And it's like this little game, but she has this propensity to hoard. And it's, it's super strange. It's super weird. Neither Sarah nor I are like that. And we just, I'm just fascinated by like where people get this from. 
And so one of my guilty pleasures is um, I, I like to watch the History Channel sometimes. And there's a show on there called American Pickers. Have you guys ever seen American Pickers? It's about these two guys, um, for those of you that maybe haven't seen it, two guys, Mike Wolf and Frank Fritz. And they have this company called, um, uh, I just totally lost, it, lost my train of thought of what it's called. Antique Archaeology. Yeah, that's right. And so they go literally around the world um, uh, most of it's here in the United States, but they drive the back roads of America in this van and they're looking for like just old stuff that's of great value. And so I love to see the things that they find. I love to see the places that they go and get to see different parts of America that, that I've never been to or I've never seen. But it's always so intriguing to me. And they, they're trying to find people like off the beaten path and everything. And so... More than likely in every episode, they'll go to one person's property and it looks like no one has visited there since the Eisenhower administration. I mean, like stuff's just overgrown and everything. And they go and they knock on a front door that's like all covered in ivy or whatever. And some guy comes out and they hand him a piece of paper and they say, hey, you know, we're Mike and Frank and we're looking for some of this stuff on this list. You got anything like that? And he'll be, yeah. And so they start to like, uh, calm the property and look in all of the places that this guy has of the things that he's kept over the years, the things that he's stored up over the years. And many of these people, they have like barns upon barns upon barns, and they'll have like old school buses on their property, jam-packed full of stuff or old trailers and everything. And some of them, they, they like have to, they have to like cut the lock off of the building to fling open the doors and everything. And they open it up and stuff comes spilling out and it's crazy, like the amount of just junk that people have. And then Mike and Frank, they'll start like climbing up on top of the piles of it and everything. And they're picking through things or whatever. And they'll pull out something that looks like something I would throw away. And they'll go, hey, I'll give you $500 for this. And then the guy goes, nah, I think I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> Wait, What? This hasn't seen the light of day in 40 years. What, what, I, I'm, I'm planning on doing something with that at some point. Sir, you are 89 years old. <laughs> you are not going, if you haven't used it by now, and he's offering you $500, what are you thinking? Right? And then they'll go through it and they're like, $600 on this. No, I'm going to hold on to that. $150 on this little trinket. No, no, that's special. I'm going to hold on to it. You know, it wasn't even like displayed prominently on a shelf. It was just thrown to the side, but it's like of utmost value to them in this outbuilding that they had to cut the lock off and clear the kudzu back to get in. And then sometimes they go inside these people's houses and like this is the stuff that's like really valuable. And in a lot of people's houses, there's like just a pathway, like big enough for somebody to kind of like sidle through you know, to get to like the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedroom and then everywhere else, it's just stuff. And it's fascinating because I ask the question all the time when I watch it, I'm like, who lives like this? Who lives like this? And so I'm looking for you 5%. I just want to see it in person sometime. It's so crazy. But you know what? Then I discovered, you know, a lot of us, most of us, we live like that. 
Now, it may not be a bunch of physical stuff that we have in our houses or in, in storage buildings on our property, but you and I, we like to hold on to things. Maybe you've experienced it this way. Maybe someone cuts you off into traffic on your way to work. You know what you do? You get upset and you hold on to that and you tuck it away in the storage bank. Or maybe you're treated rudely by a waiter or a waitress at the restaurant. You don't leave a tip. You might write them some kind of negative note. Maybe you're going online and you're filling out the, the survey to talk about how poor service you had and you're tucking away into your storage. Or maybe one of your coworkers throws you under the bus. You're going to your boss and you're complaining about it and everything and you can't stand the fact that you have to share a cubicle with Carol. It's always Carol, isn't it? She's such a jerk. And you store that away in your memory banks. Maybe it's a, it's a friend that's betrayed you. You just can't seem to get over it. Can't seem to get past it. And so you push that friend to the side. Well, that's one less friend. Good riddance. And you store that away. Or maybe it's, maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids deliberately disobey and rebel against the guidelines of your household. And you, I've had it with you. And you store that away. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe your spouse does something or, or says something that offends you to the core. And you just can't seem to get over it. So you remain married, but... A lot of the times you're like two ships just passing in the night. You know what I'm saying? And you just store that away. And like, that's just one day that stuff like that happens. And then you do that day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month, year after year, and you're just storing away, storing away, storing away. We carry this stuff with us every single day. And the load that you're carrying, the burden of that weight, that stuff that you're holding onto, that you're refusing to let go, it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And then we're confronted with Colossians 3.13 that says this, bear with each other and forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. That's right. I said the F word right here in church. Forgive. And it's the F word that makes people super uncomfortable. Man, we don't want to hear that mess because we don't want to let go of the stuff that we're holding onto. We want to keep it. We want to, we want to keep pushing it down and compacting it and, and carrying that burden day after day after day. And we're confronted with the gospel that tells us to forgive. But you know what? We don't want to. It's not in our nature. It's not in our nature to forgive. You know, instead, what we want to do, we want to get revenge. We want to take it out on people. How dare you do me wrong? How dare you say that about me? How dare you treat me that way? You deserve something bad because of what you've done to me. You cut me off in traffic. I hope you get a flat tire. It's one of those things. But God's word is clearly 
different, challenges us to something different than what we are naturally inclined to do. See, Christ has given us forgiveness, which is a free gift. And the reason he gave it to us is not for us to keep it all for ourselves. He gave it to us so that we can give it to other people. Forgiveness may be free, but my goodness, it is the hardest thing to give away, isn't it? For something that's so free, it's so hard to give away. See, here's the deal. If you and I, if we're going to live a life and do things that matter, we've got to love recklessly. But reckless love requires radical forgiveness. At the core of of reckless love, the love that Jesus Christ has shown us, at the very center of that, if we were to peel back all the layers of the onion and we got right to the middle, we would see that reckless love at its very core is radical forgiveness. And so we've been talking about the story of Joseph. And here's a guy that I believed lived this out. Unlike any other character that we discover in the Bible. Joseph was Israel's favorite. You guys can remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He had this coat of many colors, or some translations say it was a a coat with long sleeves that his dad had given him. Clearly set him apart from the rest of his brothers, and his brothers didn't like him very much. And then God saw fit for Joseph to dream not one, but two dreams in which his brothers were going to someday bow down to him. And then he, being the little punk that he was, had the audacity to tell them about it. And they hated him even more because of it. And one day they were tending the flocks out in the fields and his father, Israel, sent Joseph to check on his brothers and they saw him coming from a long way away and they plotted against him and some wanted to kill him. But Reuben stood up and said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in this big pit. And so they threw him in this pit and they ended up selling him into slavery um, to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt and they ripped the coat off of him and they, they tore it to shreds and they killed a goat and they put the blood on it so that it would look like a wild animal had killed their brother. They sold him into slavery and he went to live in Potiphar's house in Egypt. Potiphar was an an army commander in, in Egypt and he went to live there. And the Bible says that the Lord was with him and the Lord blessed him. But then Potiphar's wife came and she tried to get Joseph to have sexual relations with her. And she was relentless day after day after day after day, trying to get him to come and to sleep with her. And he refused to do it. He refused to even be in her presence. And then one day she, she, uh, she approached him and he turned her down and she had just had enough. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And as he began to run away, she reached out and she grabbed his robe and he let his robe go. And so he ran out of the house and then she called all the servants and ultimately her husband. And she said, I've got Joseph's robe. Look at what he did. He's been trying to, he's been trying to, to um, have his way with me. And so Potiphar gets angry and he throws Potiphar in prison or he throws Joseph in prison and they're in prison. Joseph is just there in the dark for a long time. But he makes these friends and the Bible says that the Lord was with him and, and the Lord began to bless him and he makes these friends and it happens to be the, the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh and each of them have dreams and he interprets those dreams and then those dreams come true and then one day Pharaoh has a dream and one of his servants remembers Joseph, the dream interpreter that's in prison. Pharaoh calls for Joseph and he asks him about this dream. We're going to talk about all of this section of the story next week. 
He asks Joseph about the dream and Joseph, um, God gives him the interpretation of the dream and Joseph communicates it. And so Pharaoh blesses him and he says, you're a wise man who clearly serves the one true God. We're going to establish you as second in command over all of Egypt. Only, only Pharaoh was greater than Joseph. And so Joseph comes up with this plan because of famine in the land that for seven years they're going to put back, um, put back into storehouses supplies and goods in order to take care of the people during the seven years of famine. And so back with Israel and his brothers, things are getting pretty bad. The famine in the land is about to cost them their life. And so Israel gets his, gets his sons together and he says, you need to go to Egypt and see if you can, see if you can get us some supplies so that we will not die. And they go on this journey to Egypt and they appear before Joseph, only they don't know that it's him. And guess what they do? They bow down at his feet and they beg him for mercy and for food. And then Joseph recognizes them, even though they don't know that it's him, he sees that it's them. And then we pick up in Genesis 45, their text for today, starting in verse one, it says, Joseph could not control himself in front of his servants any longer. So he cried out, have everyone leave me. When only the brothers were left with Joseph, he told him who he was. Joseph cried so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and the people in the king's palace heard about it. He said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him because they were very afraid of him. Verse four. So Joseph said to them, come close to me. And when the brothers came close to him, he said to them, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold as a slave to go to Egypt. I love this verse right here, verse five. Now don't be worried or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me here ahead of you to save people's lives. No food has grown on the land for two years now and there will be five more years without planting or harvest. So God sent me here ahead of you to make sure you have some descendants left on earth and to keep you alive in an amazing way. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me the highest officer of the king of Egypt. I'm in charge of this place, and I'm the master of all the land of Egypt. Now, we rewind all the way back to the beginning of Joseph's story, back to the time that his brothers plotted against him, and they ended up throwing him in a pit. You threw me in a pit. You told my father I was dead. You took my sweet, awesome coat. You sold me to slavery. Potiphar threw me in jail. I sat there in jail for years and was forgotten about. It was like this checklist. And I would say that over the course of time when Joseph was away from his family, he probably replayed that checklist over and over and over in his mind. And I wonder sometimes, like, if he thought, like, if I ever get to see my brothers again, what will happen? If I was Joseph, I would Chuck Norris roundhouse kick all of them in the face. <laughs> That's what would happen if I was Joseph. But God was able to work on him and do some things over the course of his life 
for Joseph at the end when his brothers appear before him, some, some, somehow, and it was only by the grace of God, Joseph was able to see the big picture. Joseph was able to see the big picture that, that the purpose that God had placed on his life was so much bigger than the small amount of revenge that he could take on his brothers. You and I, we need to position ourselves to where we begin to realize that the purpose that God has placed on our lives to do something bigger than ourselves, to truly do something that matters is so much bigger, so much better, so much more grand than any amount of revenge that we could exact upon those who do us wrong. Joseph was able to see the big picture of what God had for him. And I love this quote from Bernhard Meltzer. He says this, he says, when you forgive, you in no way change the past, but you sure do change the future. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry with yourselves. It wasn't you that sent me here. It was God who sent me here to save people's lives. He sent me here so that I could provide for you so that our descendants would continue on the earth. Man, you talk about reckless love, radical forgiveness. His brothers ruined his life, but Joseph realized he couldn't change the past, but through forgiveness, he could change the future. And that made all the difference. That made all the difference. In your seat this morning, you've got a card that says love recklessly on the top of it. We've had one of these for um, each week of our series so far. We'll have another one next week as we close it out. On the back, there's some sermon notes. I invite you to grab a pen. You might want to write some of this stuff down. I'm going to give you four steps to forgiving others. Four steps to forgiving others. If you and I, if we want to love recklessly, and if we want to operate in radical forgiveness, here's four steps that I believe we need to make a part of our everyday life. Number one, recognize that no one is perfect. Recognize that no one is perfect. The Bible says not a single person on earth is good and never sins. That's in Ecclesiastes 7. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Here's the thing. When, when we hate someone because of the things that, we, that they've done to us, we tend to lose our perspective about that person. When, when we're filled, filled with resentment and bitterness towards other people, those people that have hurt us, we, we tend to dehumanize the people that have offended us. We begin to treat them like animals. We just want them to endure pain because of the way that they've treated us, the way that they've harmed us, the way that they've hurt us. But you and I need to be reminded, we need to look in the mirror. We need to look in the mirror and realize that not anyone is perfect and that the same way that other people have offended and hurt us, guess what? We've hurt and offended others as well. We're all in the same boat. We are all in the same boat. Not one of us is perfect. Number one, recognize that no one is perfect. Number two, relinquish your right to get even. Relinquish your right to get even. 
this is the very heart of what forgiveness is all about. The Bible says in Romans 12, 19, it says, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God for he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. You know, you deserve to retaliate against people that do you wrong, but you got to commit to not do that. It may not be fair, but it is healthy. It's what's best. And I got to be honest, this isn't just a one-time decision. This for, I mean, it could be, but it's not always just a one-time decision. You may have to, you may have to like pray about this and, and make like real-time decisions like on a daily basis. If it's someone that's hurt you, that's offended you, that, that you see quite often, you may have to pray like, Lord, help me not to like judo chop them in the throat today when I see them. Every single day, there's people that I have to, that I have to get on my knees and pray about all the time. Lord, that person did me wrong. That person, that person hurt me to the core. Help me to forgive them. Help me to forgive them. And I have to stay on top of that because it's not just a one-time thing, man. Forgiveness leaks. So we've got to relinquish our right to get even. Makes me think of that Frozen song, Let It Go. Y'all have that in your head for the rest of the day. You're welcome. <laughs> Recognize that no one is perfect. Relinquish your right to get even. Number three, respond to the evil with good. Respond to evil with good. This is how you fully release someone from the hurt that they've caused you. But it's humanly speaking, just me and you, this is something that's nearly impossible to do. You're going to need God's help. You got you to you have the love of Jesus to fill you up so that out of the reckless love of Christ, that radical forgiveness can overflow to the people around you. Why do you need the love of Jesus? Well, it's simple because God's love doesn't keep any record of wrongs. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not count up the wrongs that have been done. It's not about keeping score. It's about letting go. It's hard to continue to be angry at someone that you're consistently on your face before God asking him to bless them. In and through that process, if you go to the throne room, you spend time with God each and every day that you're, go, you're getting into his presence and you're saying, God, help me to forgive them. Help me to love them with your love and then bless them tremendously, it's hard to stay mad at that person. Over that process, God's going to do something in your heart. He's going to end up changing you because of it. Maybe praying isn't enough. You know what? If someone's really offended you, you know how like a really good way to get back at, a, uh, get back at them is? Like a really awesome way. Like you just really want to stick it to them. Like send them a $50 gift card to Outback and be like, take that. Because you can't stay mad at somebody that you're blessing. God will use that. He will change your heart in and through that. If you will let go of all of that stuff and if you will respond to their evil with good. Man, if someone was mean to you and then you turned right around and you, you took them to dinner. What are you trying to do here, man? Like, come at me, bro. You and your steak gift cards your loaded baked potatoes. 
What kind of doors would that open up for you to minister to somebody, for you to show them the love of Christ? But you got to stay on your face. You got to ask God, man, fill me with the love of Jesus so that I can love them, so that I can let this go and bless that person. And then don't just ask God to bless them, but be a part of that blessing. All right, so here's the three things so far. Recognize no one is perfect. Relinquish your right to get even. Respond to evil with good. And then number four, refocus on God's plan for your life. You gotta put that stuff behind you. Quit focusing on the person that did you wrong, that hurt you, and focus on God's plan for your life. Here's the deal. As long as you continue to focus on the person who's hurt you, that person controls you. As long as you continue to, to focus on the person that's hurt you, that person is controlling you. And if you don't release the person that's offended you, then over time, you're going to begin to resemble your offender. So you've got to release them. Stop focusing on them. Focus on God and what he's placed in front of you, the call that he's placed on your life, the thing that he has purposed in you. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Louis B. Smead is, he says this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. <laughs> to forgive is to set a prisoner free only to discover that the prisoner was you. Your unforgiveness toward the person, it's not hurting them. It's hurting you. You're the one spending the time and the effort and the energy. You're the one up at night losing sleep over the fact that they did you wrong. Meanwhile, they're sleeping like a baby. Let them off the hook. And in doing so, you'll let yourself off the hook. Because the ultimate test of love is forgiveness. And if we're going to do something that matters, if we're going to love recklessly, then at the core of that is a radical forgiveness. Here's what Jesus said. He told his disciples in John 13, he said, I give you a new command, love each other. You must love each other as I have loved you. All people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. Here's the thing. If they will know that we are Christians, are Christ followers by our love, and if forgiveness is the ultimate test of love, then ultimately they will know that we are Christians by the way that we forgive. Does that make sense? Let me say that one more time. If they will know that we are Christians by our love, and if forgiveness is at the core of what reckless love is all about, then ultimately they will know that we are Christians, that we are Christ followers by the way that we forgive. Here's the deal. Forgiven people, forgive people. Forgiven people, forgive people. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and loving to each other and forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. Romans 5.8, I said it earlier today, but God shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still 
sinners. Forgiven people forgive people because Christ didn't give us forgiveness to hoard it away and keep it to ourselves. He gave us forgiveness so that we could give it away to others. So what if we allowed Christ's example to change the way that we acted? We began to live this way. How might we feel or how might it feel for us to release the burden of carrying the weight of unforgiveness in our lives? What if we chose to love recklessly and to radically forgive anyone who wronged us? How might that impact our overall attitude to just the world in general? What could it do to change the atmosphere in our workplace if we chose to radically forgive? How might living this way bring reconciliation with a friend or a loved one? What if Christ Walk Church was known in the community for being a church full of reckless love and radical forgiveness? How might that help touch the hearts and lives of those in Nassau County and beyond with the true message of the gospel? Like, think about that. What would that do? Like, you might not even be like a follower of Jesus, all right? But like, what, even for you, what if, what if you decided to live this way? instead of harboring hatred and bitterness and anger towards people? Wouldn't it make your life better too? So on this card, it says love recklessly at the top. It's got Genesis 45.5 on it, part of our text for today. There's a prayer on there. And then down at the bottom, it says one person I need to love more recklessly is blank. I don't know, some of you, you might need to like staple a piece of paper onto this and like write a whole bunch of names. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this card and, and over the next week, over the next months, for the course of this year, whatever name you're putting in that blank or, or names that you're carrying over to the back or onto your, your, you know, your manila file folder that you've added along with this, I want you to read this verse and I want you to pray this prayer over your life and over that person's life. Let's start living this way. It's a good way to live. It's also the way Jesus told us to live. Even though we committed the ultimate wrong, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. And I just believe that our church, our community, and the world in general would be a much better place if we'd start to live like this. Reckless love requires radical forgiveness. Let's be those people. Let's be those people. Amen? Amen. Who's with me? Let's do this. We got it. We got it.